Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And I'm Chris Noble. And we're on a journey to explore the brightest and most innovative minds and initiatives in social purpose. Today, companies and brands must stand for something meaningful. They have to have a social purpose and bring that purpose forward to their employees, their customers, and their community. Each episode, we're talking to leaders at Fortune 100 companies, global brands, social enterprise startups, NGOs, and everything in between. We'll be taking a deep dive to learn how they are integrating purpose into their organizations. To benefit both business and society for enduring impact. Join us. Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And I'm Chris Noble. And we're thrilled to be here today with Eileen Howard Boone from CBS. Eileen is Senior Vice President, Corporate Social Responsibility and Philanthropy. As well, she is President of the CBS Health Foundation. So welcome, Eileen. Thank you very much, Carol. We are so thrilled to be here because every single person I believe in the social purpose space has watched the evolution of CBS from a pharmacy and a, I've got to get it late at night snack to a health care company. I always like to start with the numbers. And so here we go. CBS was founded in 1963. They went public in 1996. Their revenues in 2017, almost $185 billion. They have nearly 300,000 employees, almost 10,000 retail locations. I drove by one this morning, 1,100-minute clinics. Their scope is vast. They reach over 100 million people every year. Five million people are served by their pharmacy on a daily basis. 62 million, including myself, and I know Chris, have loyalty cards. 37 million minute clinic visits earned a 95% satisfaction rating. Wow, that's amazing. They have 36,000 pharmacists. And I thought it was really fascinating that 64% of voters in the United States view their pharmacist as a member of their personal health care team. Those are extraordinary numbers, and I haven't even gotten into the corporate responsibility. So, um, and a little bit of that, $100 million giving in charitable contributions, employee giving, fundraising, and in-kind donations in 2017 alone. Oh, my. It's an amazing company. I've got to stop here, and let's just turn to Eileen. Eileen, we always like to start out with, what is your professional purpose? My professional purpose at CVS Health, which you so eloquently described, and it it really has changed over the 15 years I've been here, has morphed into what we call our purpose statement, which is helping people on their path to better health. And as a leader and as a colleague, um, my team and myself's actions are really based off that purpose. Fundamentally, it's embedded in everything we do at our company. So it is it is my purpose professionally and, and actually pers- personally as well. Since it is your purpose, can you tell us just a little bit about your journey at CBS? I think you've been there for 13, 14 years now. Can you kind of share how that's gone for you? Sure. I actually started in 2004. So we're now on our, my 15th year. 
And it's congratulations. Very interesting journey for me. I actually started with the company and led corporate communications and what we used to call community relations. And at the time, we were a regional health and beauty chain and we became a national pharmacy. And we put a lot of energy and effort into giving back to the community. When I started at the company, we had given to over 45,000 different nonprofits uh, in an 18-month period, which is a lot of giving, a lot of important areas and issues. But it was very, very hard to focus that work and pour it out on what we do. In fact, actually, Carol was one of the very first business partners that we brought in to help us build a strategy for a national philanthropic signature program. And she was terrific at trying to ask us the challenging stretch questions that we could figure out and hone in on what kind of program we wanted. And we ended up deciding upon a a program called All Kids Can, which was really focused on children with disabilities. And so over the period of the 15 years uh, that I've been with the company, which has really been a journey, I will say, Uh, we have morphed and evolved into what you now see as an innovative healthcare company. So it's been a really exciting time for me personally, going through the the multitude of acquisitions and changes in strategy and opportunities. And really in the end, still connecting to the people that need it the most in the communities where we live and work. No matter what we've done or how we've done it, we've really found a way to identify those folks in the underserved populations meet their needs and and talk to our colleagues and leverage those colleagues' passion and commitment to the communities as well. It really seems like the the nature of healthcare has changed a lot in that time too. Absolutely. We've changed healthcare's changed more in the last couple of years than it has in the past 50 years before that. So there has been a really uh, large step around consumerism in healthcare and how connected. And that's the value of the numbers that Carol was talking about previously that almost 10,000 retail locations and the opportunities we have across all of our business channels to connect with patients really allows us to deliver on that purpose in a very meaningful way. I'm extremely proud of this company, not only about what we do in our commercial business, but obviously through the socially responsible practices and and our, our community investment. We have really, I believe, done a marvelous job at connecting all the the scale and the the bigness of our company in very meaningful ways. And I know that um, in your sustainability report, your CSR report, you state that we serve as the front door to healthcare. That's right. And so you, you morphed from perhaps being more of a generalist to having this distinct purpose. Was there a, a point in time where there was a eureka and you had to change to this new purpose or did it gradually begin to form? It gradually began to form, but over time it was clear we had to focus. We had to refocus. And we originally had talked about the fact that we were children with disabilities. And the, the reason why we went there at first was because it was the great opportunity to connect our colleagues um, in communities where they lived and worked in meaningful ways. Children with disabilities had a very uncluttered space. We could stand up and be a leader in community investment there, and we could activate our colleagues in meaningful ways. But over time, that became less relevant as we morphed into other big, bigger issues and bigger challenges. And so we tried to take that, learn from it, and evolve it. And that's why we've come into this broader healthcare strategy when it comes to community investment. 
we want to be relevant. And the, the very basis of social responsibility from my perspective is how do we make ourselves relevant to the key stakeholders that are important to us and important to, when I talk about stakeholders, it's not just policymakers and influencers and business decisions, their own colleagues. How do we remain relevant to the things that are important to the company, what the company is today and what it's going to be over the longer term? You always have to stay flexible and adaptable to understanding where, for example, when healthcare changes a lot, how do we make sure that we continue to stay relevant and meet the needs of the community where they are? That's an easy said, hard do. Yeah, for sure. And and for our listeners, they would love to know what sort of um, functions were at the table when you were talking about evolving from a pharmacy to a healthcare company? Well, the first combination that we had was actually the PBM business. So when we thought about the the business of prescriptions, how do we make sure that we are adding value across that supply chain? So there was a variety of different business leaders at the table. Um, and I would say most of the, the senior leader folks that were affecting all things change in the company. So whether that's through an acquisition or growth in business had a voice. And, and if you look at specifically at tobacco, um, we often talk about the cross-functional team that, that was sitting at that table. And that was finance, merchandising, marketing, CSR, uh, the retail store operations folks, um, all the logistics folks that were thinking about moving that inventory. Everybody that's connected to the to the decision was brought to the table to discuss it and then to talk about their stakeholders. What are the people that were important to them? Because oftentimes when you're making big moves like this and and I say big moves, but it's also smaller moves. You have to get ahead of that unintended consequence. Any people to the table avoids that unintended consequence and allows people to connect to the decision instantly without reservation and allows really momentum to build. And so, and what was Larry's role at that point? Was he in the meetings or did he say, this is my vision and now I need my colleagues to debate and to try and shape the future? Larry is an extraordinary CEO. He is one of the folks that I always learn from in a variety of different ways. And in this particular situation, he wanted it to be a decision made by the leaders. It wasn't Larry dictating the decision. It was, let's get to this idea and how do we get there in a meaningful way? Um, And that's why it was, I think, such a powerful ability. You had people's passion connected to it. People were on board. They felt engaged. They felt they had a point of view in the in the issue, a dog in the hunt, to make that that decision work so smoothly. And Larry orchestrated that as the CEO. He didn't dictate. He empowered and engaged people. And and, and I've you know seen his interviews. I've met him once or twice. He is such a regular guy. You know, I wouldn't say humble. I just think he's the kind of person you go out and have a beer with or wine or whatever you go walking with. He just seems someone that you would want to engage with. You're you're very, very lucky. I am very lucky. In fact, I was with um, the top 300 senior leaders last week and I was talking about CSR as a practice and how it supported the business. And I kept reminding people that as a business, we are about as socially responsible as you can get. If you think about all the sectors and, and confluence of, of opportunities that happen, um, particularly for a for-profit company. And the fact that we have leaders who have courage and 
commitment in this space is a remarkable asset that you can't really quantify. Larry's courage for making that decision on tobacco, I think is quite extraordinary. And the opportunities that have come from that decision, whether it's other issues and tobacco is, is a, is a shining moment for us, but we've made other similar type. Um, if you think about tobacco as your Everest, we've made Mount McKinley's in our lives, um, the last couple of years to really connect in meaningful ways. And we've done that because he's empowered us to make the right decisions for the business. This isn't just a nice to do strategy opportunity or a PR uh, initiative. This is a fundamental way we go about our business and how we think about it. Yeah, Eileen, I I think that really comes through in uh, some of your, the branding and straight up marketing that you do as well as your CSR. And actually, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. I know we're going to spend more time on Everest, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about one of those McKinley's. Uh, and if you can just share a little bit about the the Beauty Mark program, because I think it's a, a great marketing tie, but also speaks to a different kind of wellness, uh, self-esteem. That's right. We did a lot of research with regard to um, young women's health and their self-esteem and their self-perception is very, very much driven into their their health and their ability to create healthy behaviors for them. That is a, a, another example of leadership in the sense that that decision, that idea came from the merchandising team and the CSR team. It was a, a confluence of a, of a number of leaders that came together to talk about what things we could do to step out to really help young women in particular, be the best they can be. Helping people on their path to better health has a lot of different definitions depending on the merchandise category or the area of business that you're in. So that's a perfect example of that. And one of the great opportunities with that was connecting with Girls Inc., which is the nonprofit that we connected with. Try and make to, to connect those two things in a way to let our customers and our consumers know that we were making the decision, again, not just because we wanted to you know, make a media splash, but we really wanted to find a way to really connect our customers and our consumers and our young women to the to the value of the of of being yourself, being authentic. Uh, we had lots of colleagues and lots of our uh, uh, partners across the country taking their own um, selfie, and it was a, a wonderful moment to see them all connecting in in a way that stood up for something important and powerful from the broader good. I'd love to just touch on that one more time because, well, first of all, as the dad of a 16-year-old, CBS is one of her first go-to points when she's looking at new beauty stuff. So that's, uh, it's working. Uh, You should know that. Uh, But also, uh, we've done a lot of work with Girls Inc. and I I love their program overall. And, And I wanted you to talk just for a little bit about partner selection for those kinds of campaigns and efforts and and why that's important. Carol could probably give a whole course on partner selection, <laughs> learn a little bit about that from her, um, and then over time refined it. I've not probably gotten to my PhD on partner selection, but it only achieved the master's degree on that. And that's because you learn, right? You find ways to connect with partners. You have to be synergistic. You have to be mission aligned, all that important stuff. But you have to understand that the basic preference of these organizations is they are mission-driven. So oftentimes they may not have some of the things that you would expect to have in a collaborative commercial partnership. And so what are the ways that you can fill those gaps for them so that one plus one can equal seven? And partner selection for us is 
is really a science. We think about what's going to resonate with stakeholders that we care about in this particular decision. What is an opportunity to extend that decision when you think about some of the things we did in tobacco in particular, we've we've extended those decisions over the longer term because of the partner selections we've we've made and how we can make sure that they are viewed as a sustainable opportunity for us to really affect change. Change doesn't happen in a day. Change doesn't happen in a month. Over time, you have to work on that and really invest in it and reevaluate it over and over and over again. So you really want to be with a partner that understands what you're going for and how how to achieve that and also be flexible. You know, I've, we've got some very long-term partners that we've had over time that have really found ways to connect with us as we've grown. I, I, I'll even use one of the partners we have with All Kids Can, Easter Seals, over the period of time that we've worked with them, which is now, gosh, over 10 years, um, they have found ways to connect to our purpose and connect to our programs in meaningful ways. And they have given us some solutions and some opportunities to connect with stakeholder groups that we care about. Veterans is is an area that we really have a lot of passion for, and they've found ways to connect with us um, in the opioid abuse issue with veterans. And so they've done a remarkable job at pivoting, and I have to give them credit for being a great partner. And we've got lots more. We could do a whole podcast on partner selection We've got some great case studies, and you know, of course, everybody isn't perfect all the time. We've we've made some some challenging choices, but we've we've refined it now that as a big company, we want to look for people that care about the issues that we care about and have the resources to connect the local level for us in very meaningful ways. Our store managers are the you know we talk about the front door of healthcare, but those store managers and those pharmacists are doing their jobs every day. We want to give them the assets to keep to allow them to connect to the community in very powerful ways that doesn't have a lot of extra time and energy put into it that they should be using to to care for patients. I'm curious about um, your employees. And every time I go to the pharmacy, I get greeted with a smile, service, amazing. Um, How have you driven the purpose statement down to that level, to the employee level? I'm so glad you said that because, you know, helping people on their path to better health is only eight words. And when we were choosing that purpose and refining that purpose, we were very focused on word count. Word count because we have 180,000 retail colleagues that had to connect to that purpose. And when we think about, and we've done the research when we talk to our colleagues, people in our stores connect to that in very meaningful ways. People in the mailroom connect to that in very meaningful ways. People in finance doing third-party reimbursement connect to that in very meaningful ways because they can all find a way that what they're doing is helping people on their path to better health. That's about as powerful as you can get when it comes to the you know, resonance of your purpose. Our retail colleagues love to talk about the purpose. They, they have passion behind it and they figure out ways they can get to it. In fact, they're often starting their business cases or their strategy discussions around the purpose. It is, it's not we have to train people on, they, they get it. And, and I'm just curious about how, that's wonderful. Um, how does that translate down to your employee volunteerism hours? Because you had a huge bump from, I think, 2017, 2018. The amount of time was like from two and a half million to 3.7 million in one year. So what happened? 
we put a lot of energy and effort into the creation of poly volunteer programs, but it's not a case where you build it and they will come. You have to communicate, you have to promote, you have to enable, you have to prepare, you have to provide the follow-up. We did a lot of work on my team to create these turnkey types of programs that could not only provide teams, for example, an engagement opportunity, but allow them to give back, allow them to track their hours easily. There's a lot of science behind building engagement programs that have um, a lot of tactical parts of their program. But once you have that fundamental tool set together, you have to then promote it and activate it and market it on a regular basis and then recognize people. We do a lot of recognition here. So we've inspired people and engaged people to give back. And I think the performance that we have out of the last couple of years is a really testament to my team of really trying to think about how do we connect people in these very um, turnkey ways that can really activate their passion around their own local community. Everybody wants to give back. Everybody does. It's just trying to find a way that they can do it in their busy day, do it in their busy week where we can really make a difference for them and for the for the nonprofit. And do you have a number of hours that you have allotted to uh, pay time off to volunteer? We have a program called the, the Volunteer Challenge Grants that gives back to organizations that people uh, invest their time in. So it's a, an engagement opportunity for them to participate as an individual or as a team. So, Chris, I know that you are fascinated by the Aetna um, acquisition. So I'm going to let those questions go over you. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. I appreciate that. I, I really am. It, it, it struck me as a, a, a bold and brilliant move to go from that, you know, a, a strong but pretty retail-focused footing to a footing where you're a retailer and um, a major service provider and, you know, literally in their mail, in their homes uh, every month uh, and with them all the way to the doctor. So I, I thought it was really clever. And and the thing I wanted to ask you was in particular, how do you merge your CFR efforts when you're, when you're merging businesses as well, right? So Aetna and the Aetna Foundation also have programs that increase access to quality health care. They, they serve uh, lower income minority communities. How did those programs get improved? imported uh, and incorporated into your overall structure? Or do they do they stay siloed as you guys are figuring it all out? I have the advantage as the leader of CSR and philanthropy here at CVS Health and now the broader team um, with the fact that we have the same philosophy and, and mission around supporting communities. We had very, very little... Um, contradictory approaches. They were very complementary. And both organizations have had very, very long histories of giving back to the communities where they serve. Um, This was a a huge opportunity to bring a lot of experts and a lot of subject matter um, folks together in one team. And we've been able to actually integrate and merge it in, in a really neat way. And I'll give you one example, which is in the opioid space, where we as CVS Health have been investing from the longer, from the legacy CVS has been investing is in local programs and initiatives to really support patients around medication assisted therapy. We have a lot of programs where we have our pharmacists go out into the communities to teach middle and high school kids around um, prescription abuse and understanding around the, the education and awareness around disposal, things like that. Whereas Aetna came to the issue with an approach around harm reduction coalitions. And if you're familiar with that concept, it's it's really a cross-functional seat 
team on a state-by-state basis that allows people to come to together, have a seat at the table to really understand what the issues were happening in that particular state and how to break it down. So our, our initiatives and our approaches were similar, but very complementary. And so we didn't have any of the conflict or the challenges around issues and opportunities because we really are both very focused around community health and how we did that. Um, we'll, we will continue to evolve over time. In fact, we just announced in January a $100 million uh, program, five years uh, to building healthier communities. And our focus, our areas of opportunity are continue to be an access to affordable health care. Access to health care is one of the critical things that we both have had in common. Addressing, the second one is addressing uh, big public health challenges. And again, that would be opioids we were both in, as well as tobacco um, and other opportunities. And then the last one is as local pressing issues. And so both of us have a very similar approach to it. And together, I, I can't say it enough, it's been really rewarding to see how the programs have come together in a meaningful way. And using um, both sides of the house in terms of resources is going to be a really terrific thing to see over time. So, you know, it, it sounds like just listening to you talk about how partnerships come together and then also how how this merger is coming together. It, it sounds like your advice for the audience is, is more uh, focus on the similarities and the mission, not so much the, the differences when you're we're bringing these kinds of entities together. Is that fair to say? Okay. Yes, absolutely. I've been through enough acquisitions to tell you that uh, predictors of success are, are when the leaders stay curious and focus on the connections um, and collaborations as opposed to winning. And then that zone of opportunity for both organizations really are the, the best places to affect change. And so when you, when you stay curious to understand why and how situations have occurred and the opportunities to kind of morph together, that has been, I think, the best combination. And I've been through it a couple of times now, and you've, you can see when things are going to work, when people are open to collaborations as opposed to uh, edit, uh, find, replace. You know, when you're collaborating, I think it actually works to to a much better better outcome. I love that. I'm I'm keeping stay curious. I'm going to take that directly from you. Thank you. You're welcome. But I love stay curious versus winning, because you can see when organizations come together and they're jockeying for, well, I have this team, well, I have this budget, et cetera. And I think again, in feeling it, it seems to be a culture that comes from Larry. Because he is so empowering, so so that that's wonderful. It's it's a great lesson for so many mergers that are happening. Yeah, because the the other point is, you know, we have a lot of smart people at this company on both sides between Aetna and CVS Health, as well as other organizations across CVS Health. When you have a lot of smart people coming together, it's important to stay curious because you're going to get a much better outcome when you're trying to prove your your point you lose something. And I would time and time again, we've been fortunate to have extremely smart people as well as very, very strong collaborators. And that has been the key to our success over the longer term. Uh, you're, you're throwing us all these incredible insights. I love them. Um, I want to turn to um, the decision to stop selling tobacco. Um, as I give so many speeches um, with large groups or smaller groups, especially with C-suite executives, um, everyone knows, I believe, about your decision to stop selling tobacco. Um, and But I always say, I wish I was, 
um, a fly on the wall in the boardroom um, over the years as you were moving towards this very, very courageous decision. Um, again, and I think that you said that it's going to cost you somewhere around $2 billion, the $2 billion decision. Can you share um, your role in that decision? Were you in the room or did you know about it? And uh, what are the takeaways for our listeners? Well, removing tobacco from our stores is a is an was and still is very much a passion project for me. I have felt that that is one of the most um, courageous things we've ever done as a company. And I was very much part of not only the purpose work, the creation of that purpose, but in my mind's eye, knew if we created that purpose, that was going to create an inconsistency when it came to tobacco. Uh, there was a very large cross-functional team that worked on that decision. And what was very clear to me now years later was... The amount of thought and preparation that went into a decision like that, it's very easy to say we decided to remove a product from our stores. In fact, I would say the merchants often tell me that the hardest decision they have to make is what not to sell in the stores. But when it comes out to removing a category like that from our stores, that took a lot of time, thoughtful strategy and preparation. So if you can imagine how many stakeholders affected, I talked a little bit about unintended consequences by a decision like that. The, the job of this cross-functional team was to understand who was going to be affected by this decision, how they would react, and how would we remediate that or eliminate that as an obstacle. So for example, for the store managers, we removed tobacco sales out of their compensation. It wasn't fair to them, for example, to penalize them for a reduction of that, that sale category out of their stores. We thought about colleagues. We thought about investors, as you can imagine, it's $2 billion. How do we set a business case for the investment community to understand why this was a really good business decision? And in fact, it proved to be more than that with the idea that we fully aligned our, our mission, our strategy, our focus to healthcare outcomes. And that perfectly fit with a lot of the clients that we were pitching, a lot of the stakeholders that were engaging. Our mission and our focus on healthcare and the elimination of tobacco, which was inconsistent with that put us in very good stead with a lot of key decision makers. And it proved to be not only an opportunity for us to grow, our stock price, price improved as well. We built a lot of stakeholder engagement around that decision. And you know, still now in 2019, there's not a meeting I, I go to with any stakeholder group that doesn't talk about the tobacco decision as a meaningful commitment on health. And and I know I followed it, you know, so, so sharply. And I remember, I think that it was months after that your stock price was up significantly. And I I know that um, when I would talk to audience about it and everybody go, well, yeah, what happened to their sales? And you were very transparent about sales in the front of the store were down, sales in the back of the store, Minute Clinic, others um, were up. Can you talk a little bit about was there a holding of the breath um, within your colleagues, or did you just say, "This is where we're going. We know that we're going to become a healthcare company." So when I talk about thoughtful strategy and, and planning and preparation, that was all built into it. We knew that we were going to have a headwind when you remove a category of that size, and we had planned accordingly. The, the, the benefit we had was we felt that it was going to help us in the longer term in terms of the growth opportunity from large uh, stakeholders that were important to us, whether that's health plans or, um, or others. When we thought about Miniclinic and other things, 
over time, and, and it's interesting because I watch other retailers and their approach to it or, or, or not, um, it has been a freeing moment for us because we don't have to be encumbered by the fact that we sell things that are not good for you in the, in the absolute soundbite of, 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 of connecting with the product. Tobacco is the only product that we sell that is not, that we did sell, that was not good for you. Obviously, we sell candy and we sell um, other types of things that in moderation can be managed. But tobacco was the one thing that taken at all was bad for you. And so the moment of removing that that's, that category from our stores was a very freeing moment, I think, for a lot of people in our company to, to make other choices. You know, we worked with a lot of folks in the merchandising side in our front store and those within the, the back of the house in the, in the pharmacy around decisions that they could make to support, you know, the broader corporate social responsibility. You know, we removed chemicals of concern. That was a two-year two project with one of our key merchants, when she saw the list of chemicals of concern, how do we work with her to get that happening? Um, that takes a lot of planning, a lot of, of thoughtful strategy around removing those unintended consequences. As a leader of CSR, I want to make sure leaders know they can rely on me to not only identify opportunities, but support them through that process. It is not something that you take on lightly and then you figure it out later. We are very much a ready, aim, fire company. And when we do that thoughtfully, we win every time. In particular, the initiative that you have that's the five-year investment to help people live tobacco-free lives, I'd love to, to drill in on that a little bit. And, and here, you know, three years in, what are the lessons learned and, and what does the road ahead look like? Sure. So when we made the decision in 2014, uh, we went on the road. We did a listening tour across the country. Um, I went with our chief medical officer and our head at the time of government affairs, and we traveled all across the country to talk to stakeholders, both local uh, tobacco control folks, as well as community health people, to really make sure that they understood what the opportunities were in our stores. So one of the ideas that we talked about in preparation is we wanted to train our pharmacists to really uh, identify those that were ready to smoke, ready to quit smoking, and how do we give them the warm transfer to the 1-800-QUIT-NOW partnership that we had in place? How do we make sure that people understood what we were doing and what we weren't doing? We had never sold e-cigarettes, um, and so the challenge of making sure people understood that we were um, not in that space and making sure that customers and, and clinicians in particular also understood what we stood for and why we were committing to that. But over time, it was very clear to me as we traveling across the country that one of the, the challenges we had is that there were new smokers every single day. We saw, you know, there's 3.6 million middle and high school students that were smoking um, and becoming new smokers. And how do we think about that? And, and from a larger impact perspective, how do we make sure that decision to remove tobacco was going to be long lasting and that we could continue that fight in meaningful ways? And so we came up with this program called Be the First, and it was helping to create the first tobacco-free generation. So very much focused on the, on the youth population. Um, and we've done a number of different things. This is actually our fourth year. And over time, we've affected and reached more than 9 million youth with smoking prevention messages, which is not a small uh, task and a very meaningful opportunity for us because we've connected to them both on the middle school and high school, but all the way up through colleges, we've supported 228 colleges and universities, women's colleges and, and community colleges undergoing that tobacco-free process. How do we help young people make that decision early, help them with healthy behaviors to make sure that they don't ever start smoking? And if they have, how do they help them stop? 
And so it's been a, a wonderful coalition of partners that we've used across the, the healthcare non, nonprofit spectrum to really connect with us on that way. And, and that's from the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids to the American Heart Association, the American Cancer Association, the American Lung Association, trying to find meaningful ways to connect with these young people to make sure that they um, understand what this is and the, and how they're being marketed to. It's a, it's a variety of, of um, messages that they're hearing through social media and other channels, and we wanted to make sure they knew the science as well as physiological impact that would be having on them. So that, that's pretty that's pretty interesting and important too, right? It's 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 just as much about spreading the awareness as it is about having the policy. Yes, and 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 being mindful of the trends. So, for example, in eighteen, we now saw a spike in youth smoking, and that's because of this incredible trend around e-cigarettes. And I'm sure Carol might have mentioned this to you, but I have six children. My oldest is twenty, and my youngest is nine. And um, if I see across my three girls and three boys and the experiences they've had in their in their lives of watching how other kids have been have been glomming onto this this trend of e-cigarettes, it's very disconcerting for me as a parent, but also as public health to understand that this has become a thing that kids have become ridiculously addicted to, and that blood blood brain barrier um, when it comes to nicotine is very very powerful. And trying to figure out how we can connect on that particular issue, because we're seeing not only are kids using e-cigarettes, but then they're trending up into combustibles. And so we may be right back in 10, 15 years where we were years and years and years ago. So the idea is trying to really connect that watch for trends, make sure you can be flexible and adaptable to the to the early signs of, of issue. And and really to fight the addiction, not not just kind of the the face of it, whether it's nicotine cigarettes or nicotine jewels, it's it's the addiction that's the motivating factor. Right. And those vehicles are becoming more and more sophisticated, Chris. So, you know, parents don't often realize, but they look like a USB. They're doing it in school. They're doing it in the bathrooms. You know, a funny story that my my 12-year-old and I were waiting outside, this is about a year ago, waiting outside for a reservation, a restaurant reservation. And she was horrified, by the way, she's going to be this fantastic tobacco control advocate when she grows up, but she was horrified to see what she thought somebody was smoking. She's like, mom, I can't believe that. I can't believe that they're doing that. And it's terrible. And then the young man walked by and he had, a, he was obviously smoking a creme brulee vape. He looked at me, oh, that smells so good. Oh no. I love I it. And that's, they're becoming more sophisticated. They're trying to to kids in a new and different way. And that's what we want to try and help educate young people about, that it's happening, it's happening to them, and how to make sure that whatever the modality, they think about their health first. Yeah, it's, it's Joe Camel all over again. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm fairly conservative. My parents, my, my kids would tell you that their parent is very strict, but it has become horrific for me to look at that advertising. The things that come social media you just, I, I blush it's it's really tricky how they do it no I understand and, and actually uh, you know uh, sorry to turn from serious to even more serious but you know there's there's other addictions that you're fighting with with actually some of the same partners this is probably a good time to transition a little bit and talk about the opioid epidemic and what CBS is doing to confront that issue well we could probably spend a whole other hour talking about this issue and the unfortunate outcomes and, and crisis that happen from um, the opioid abuse issue. And I will tell you that 
when we think about areas of opportunity for CSR and the places that we want to focus on, we do um, a standard materiality assessment and we think about what's important to stakeholders and what is the area of, of growth for our company and where we think we can bring size and scale to the issue. I know I'm repeating myself, but that's an important concept, bringing size and scale to an issue to affect change. Opioid is a perfect example of that. It's important to our stakeholders. It's important to our long-term value. We want our patients to take the right medication in the right way at the right time and finish their medication, their course of medication. So we've spent a lot of time thinking about as a commercial enterprise, how to make sure we are preventing that from happening, the misuse and the abuse. And then areas of education and engagement um, around teaching parents, teaching kids, teaching those that are addicted, what are the opportunities, and then creating other mechanisms to support. So that might be disposal or recovery or, um, or emergent care. So if I, if I could just walk you through part of our approach, if you think about it on a continuum, we spend an awful lot of time on prevention and education. I talked a little bit about a few minutes ago around our Pharmacists Teach program. We have pharmacists going out into the community talking at the middle school and the high school level around prescription uh, misuse and abuse and what to look out for and how to make sure that it, that does not occur. And then we think all, we, we take those programs, we also bring it to parents now to make sure that parents can watch out for the signs and the signals and make sure they're having those conversations with their kids. We also are making sure that we are prescribing in a way that uh, the CDC has decided um, that is a, the guidelines of for dispensing that make sure that we are preventing uh, waste. So in that particular case, we're talking about um, seven-day supply limits for acute pain. Where we're also providing opportunities for disposal. Uh, years ago, we started a program for creating disposal units in police stations all across the country. Uh, and, where, and when it was appropriate and the DEA allowed for us to provide in-store kiosks, we did that as well. And so now we have in-store kiosks as well as police stations across the country. Again, with the opportunity to dispose of their unused medication, that's actually a twofer from our perspective because it not only gets rid of the medication out of the out of the supply chain, it also does it in an environmentally safe way, which is incredibly important to us as well. Um, so we're, we've we've tackled the education and awareness, the the dispensing as well as the disposal. We're also working with uh, community health centers around recovery. We have a two-year program right now. We'll be funding the third cohort um, shortly to creating um, best practices around medication-assisted therapy and how community health centers can actually deliver that, training the clinicians and making them understand the signs and how to support those patients. Uh, it's a very powerful program. We're really super proud of it because it is really trying to get to that underserved population, those that, um, that need it. And then we also provide naloxone in our stores. We right now, I think we're we're 43 states across the country that allow for it, and we provide that in in CVS pharmacies all across the country. We're also in the in the process of of supporting a lot of nonprofits around searching and supplying that naloxone to make sure they have that at the ready um, when when issues occur. So it is a very complicated and challenging issue. We believe we have a lot of subject matter expertise that we can deploy against it for communities to really help them. I talked a little bit about what Aetna Foundation has done in terms of harm reduction as well as, as the R approach as well to really get at the issues in a number of different ways. These bigger 
societal uh, public health challenges are not something that one company can solve for. So we participate in a lot of coalitions, we do a lot of convenings, and we work with um, with all of our partners to see if we can try and define ways to get to these folks in a very meaningful way. Do you, do you find, not just because you're, you're sort of a go-to place for health and health information, but also because of your footprint, right? Because you actually have the physical locations that that gives you an asset that your your other allies don't have. Is that part of what CBS brings to the table? Yes, but probably not the ways for the ways you think. Um, you know, we do a lot of of help with families when they want to get that naloxone to to help support them. We're we're spending a lot of time with nonprofits to make sure they're aware of some of those opportunities. We do first fill counseling when you actually get an opioid. How do you make sure that People understand the seven-day limit, so um, it's it's designed to really help educate patients and their families to really support them in the journey. You've given us so many wonderful insights. That um, are there three additional insights that you could share with practitioners when they have evolved to a new and uh, really focused purpose, and then how to again, engage the business so that there is um, integrated growth and opportunity development? I'd say first is you have to start with the materiality of your business. Any practitioner needs to understand how their company makes money. What's critically important, who the stakeholders are, what, what, what focus can you affect and what resources can you bring? Um, that's a, one of the most critical Parts. It has to be authentic. It has to be relevant to the business. It has to be material and it has to be stakeholder based. The second would be when you're trying to sell it in, when you're trying to get leaders to adopt a strategy that you believe is the right one for the company, you have to lead with the business case. Why is it important for this leader to adopt this strategy? What is the critical outcome that he or she is going to see by doing this that's going to make a meaningful difference in their lives? And how can they affect it? How can they be part of it? How can they engage in it? So it's important to start with that business case and, and you, you're going to have to continue to sell that business case in over time. And then the last one would be, if I had to pick three, um, would be measurement. You're selling it in, you're trying to drive the materiality, you're trying to make sure you get stakeholders aligned. Then you got to put your money where your mouth is. You've got to actually measure those impacts. Change if you need to, but continue to, me- to measure, continue to report that measurement. Make sure people understand that there is a return from this. There's a social impact return. There's also a, a, a huge reputational return. But you've got to measure that. You've got to be able to share that with people so they understand what you committed them to and how that turned out in the end. It's it's fascinating that you said three because most of our um, guests go, oh, yeah, I'll give you three. And I think you could give probably 30. Um, but I'll give you a few more points if you'd like to share. What are your final thoughts for our listeners? To do this work, you have to be a passionate person. You've got to learn how to harness your personal passion to affect change. When you use your passion to inspire and to engage leaders, for example, or colleagues, you really can make a difference. But it starts with your own personal passion. I was at a, uh, as I said, a couple of days ago with our top senior leaders, and I was talking about a variety of different programs. And then we broke for Q&A and people were asking me questions. And I got down from the stage and sat back down and I, I happened to be sitting next to the president of our retail business. And he said, 
it's just so interesting to me that your passion just continues to grow over time and you're always so engaged with what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I'm just, I'm impressed with that. And I turned to look at him and I said, because I believe what we're doing is the right thing and it's going to make a meaningful difference to not only our business, but the people that we're targeting and the people that are delivering it. There's a real value added to committing to these social practices, not only for the public good, but for the for the self, you know, your, your individual uh, psychic satisfaction for those colleagues that are volunteering and the company that it supports. Passion is critical to success. Well, I love that that you say in your CSR report that we will continue to align our CSR goals with CBS Health's leading position at the heart of healthcare delivery in the United States. I just would like to, to say that this has been a fantastic discussion. Um, some of the key points that I noted down, you know, empowered that Larry Merlo, Merlo empowered the senior team that um, that you have leaders within the company that have courage and commitment that along your journey, which has been, you know, certainly uh, very expansive to stay curious versus winning, which I think is such a great um, concept. But again, it has to be led by Larry and his senior team um, that recognition is big for your people, especially at the grassroots level. Um, because you want to truly um, have, you know, be fully aligned with your strategy to your healthcare outcomes. Um, I've always had, you know, at the top of my list, Unilever and Starbucks and CVS. You have now given um, me and Chris and our listeners so many other great great insights and reasons to be just rapid CVS customers, um, as well as we can learn so much from you. So I want to thank you, Eileen. Um, I'm going to take you up on some of the other episodes that you said you'd love to talk about. So you will come back, I hope, with open arms. And I would just like to end this to our listeners with the question, what is your purpose? <laughs> 